left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. People won't invest. As much as they may find the deals, if they're not putting in 100% of the equity on their own every time, which no sponsor really is, they ultimately need an investor base who kind of believes in Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm pleased today to have Arye Scheinbein with me. He helps people invest their money intelligently, allowing their wealth to accumulate so they can focus on what matters, which is their business and their mission. He's worked with private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, and banks. He now focuses on helping passive investors who join his community in both reviewing the deals they bring to him, as well as presenting his own deals to the investors. And he's the host of the Inside the Lion's Den podcast. Arye, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. Pleasure to be here. The way we start out is your journey, kind of your passive investing journey, your financial journey. How'd you get to where you are now with your community and you're helping other investors? So can you just kind of bring us up to speed on where you started and how you got there? I guess I went the, from a financial perspective, I went down the, hey, go to college, get a good job type of path. So got a undergrad degree in finance and immediately went to Wall Street, not in the stockbroker type of model, but more the investment banking, which is really focused on capital markets, raising money for companies, mergers and acquisitions, buying companies and things of that nature. From there, I kind of moved on to private equity investing, so investing in non-publicly traded companies, as well as a lot of early stage companies, so venture capital and companies that are kind of like, hey, we're giving them the capital to kind of grow. From an early on perspective, though, as much as my career had a lot of success and I learned a lot both about investing and building businesses in my day job, my passive investing was pretty early on, I would say... I think when Robert Kiyosaki's book first came out, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, so dating myself a little bit, like it came out probably like in the early 2000s, maybe even like 2000, 2001. I remember reading it and it was very eye-opening 
even as someone in finance, that the idea that, hey, there's the business side, there's the employee side, there's the investing side, self-employment side, and, and all the different quote-unquote quadrants. But it made me realize like, hey, I spend a lot of my time investing in either companies or businesses or stocks. And that real estate had this passive side to it because if you invest in the S&P 500, it's great. Like historically, we're talking 8 to 10%. Obviously, last year in 2021, it was up 27%. The year before, it was a good 20%. But at the end of the day, like there's obviously dividend investing on the stock side, right? So that could be a little bit of a passive. In an environment like this where dividends are, you know, whatever, 3% yield, and you're like, hey, I want something that can generate returns for me, but in a very passive way, because unless you're going to get active in your portfolio, whether it's trading or options, you're now going to start to move back to this trading time for money. You're moving away from the passivity of the whole thing to the active component. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, especially if you enjoy that and you're going to do the research. But outside of like indexes or super, super long-term approaches, there's no like set in for type of thing and most of it is not really income driven. Most of it really is going to be appreciation driven. Some people will kind of have a hybrid approach, but more or less, like I started looking at real estate early on as something that seemed like, you know, not everybody does, but it, it seemed pretty interesting to me. Now, again, dating myself a little bit, when I was starting this, like the big things in real estate back then were like Carlton Sheets uh, and Robert Allen had like these, these no money down programs. And Basically, they'd kind of try and sell you into these like $5,000 programs, right? Like, hey, you know, you could buy a house for no money down, blah, blah, blah. And the truth of the matter is, is like not to crap on those programs, but those people were no longer doing real estate, right? Like they were making money marketing to you. And it wasn't passive. Like the reality is, is like if you start to try and get into these things and start to own a home. And so I did go out and get a single family home. And that's where I learned all of the pitfalls. A, that there's active requirement on your part, right? Like finding a tenant and then if the roof has a leak or your boiler breaks or any of these things, this is no longer really passive. And even in today's market where there's a lot of places where you can get an active manager for you, you know, you can get like outside management, you still have to manage those people. Like at the end of the day, it's your asset. When I started meeting people who their professions were to buy 200 unit multifamilies or even a 60 unit multifamily. That seemed like a whole lot more passive to me. It was much more like, hey, I'm the bank, so to speak, right? Like I'm the equity investor. I am the person who's putting up the capital. Now, obviously in the beginning, I didn't have the money that a lot of these people were like, well, our minimum is $100,000, even if it was $50,000. So over time, my objective was, okay, I had started actually doing a lot of other let's call it now side hustles. But back then it was like, you know, night side things that I built up in e-commerce. I have a couple of e-commerce businesses. And so these things were generating excess cash that allowed me to start investing into these syndicated deals. You know, I probably got into the, my first single family home. It was definitely pre-07. It was around probably 06, 07 time. Obviously then dealt with 08, which was definitely not the good time. But I did one syndicate in 2007. So we kind of bought at the peak. And 2008, 9, and 10 was really, really rough in that project. And you actually were posed with the question, do you... They needed a lot of capital to get through that time. 
And it was kind of like, you can ante up as a limited partner. You were asked to either ante up or kind of like, you know, I think they were willing to take, take you out at like 10 cents on the dollar or something like that. And long story short, like I didn't have the money to like keep anting up, like to ante up through that. And, or at least I didn't really have the desire, I should say. I think at that point I had the money, but I really didn't have the desire because the project was looking pretty bleak. And most people bailed on it. And the people who stayed with it and the operator, they have done obviously phenomenally, phenomenally well on that property. But all that being said, that is the long-winded version of my journey into some of these different things. People are making money marketing to you rather than making money on the real estate. That's still something that you need to be on the lookout for. And the other thing is the active, or that you think sometimes that you're getting into a passive investment when you're hiring a property manager to manage it for you. And as you said, you end up managing the managers. That is not at all passive. And so syndications are a way to hire an asset manager who handles everything else. So I guess one of the first questions is back to the marketing. How do you know when someone is making money marketing for you rather than making money investing for you or managing the asset for you? So I look at platforms. So the world, I would say the last five years, the overarching world in general, but specifically to access to investments has changed tremendously. So if you think about Realty Mogul or Yield Street or Fundrise or any of these platforms today that I guess the, the marketing angle that they have is like access for the masses or individuals can get into the big deals now or that kind of thing. The first question, just stop and ask yourself is, hmm, how exactly is this working that this big deal of whatever, a $100 million acquisition or even a $30 million acquisition of a large building or buildings or storage or development of buildings, how exactly is it that now I have access to this and in the past I didn't and who's making what? Because at the end of the day, like, and this, this goes to any investment, right? Like where is the money being made? which is part of the challenge with the financial industry in general, because most people are designing solutions for you, but most of the time, people are kind of focused on giving the solution that benefits them, right? So if you go to the insurance broker, he's obviously going to tell you you need life insurance. Now, whether it's whole life or term life, whatever it is, but he's incentivized to close you on something because that's how he's paid, right? He's commissioned, he's incentivized. And the wealth advisor who works for whether it's you know Edward Jones or Merrill Lynch or whatever it is, like his objective is to get assets under management, AUM, right? So he gets you into the funds and certain funds they make more money on. And at the end of the day, he's being paid to manage your money, but he can't get you into that real estate deal. And so it's not really in his best interest to advise you to do that. So if you look at Fundrise or, or Realty Mogul, I'm not knocking the platforms because they are creating something that couldn't have been done years ago, but understand that they are taking a cut. That if you were to have found that sponsor, that operator on your own, or if you actually just reach out to that operator, right? And if you have the ability to write a $50,000 check, if you look at the returns on Realty Mogul and you say, okay, here's this deal, and you find that exact deal through the operator direct, the returns should look different and if they're not, someone's changing something on you because at the end of the day, Realty Mogul has to get paid. And, and I'm not questioning their business model, right? Like they have to operate, they have to make money and I totally get that. But at the end of the day, you as the investor need to understand that someone's taking something off the top. And 
if it's modeled in to the fees, right? Like so, so when you look at a deal when as an investor, if you're gonna look at a, a syndicated deal as a passive investor, everyone has their different kind of like benchmark things that they look at, right? So we have MOIC, multiple invested capital, or otherwise known as an equity multiple. We have IRR, which is effectively your return, but it factors in the present time value of money. And then we have the average annualized return. So if we take the total return and we divide it by the number of years that we've been invested in, and then we have the cash on cash, actual cash flow relative as a percentage of the cash we deployed into the deal. Those are typically what most investors are going to be looking at, one or all four of these things. And everyone has different drivers for what's interesting to them. If you run your numbers or you understand those numbers, and there's already the fees are already baked into that, that is okay. But just understand that if you were able to have gone direct, those numbers should look better for you as the investor. If you're like, hey, well, Fundrise lets me go in or Realty Mogul lets me go in at a $25,000 or $35,000 and I wouldn't be able to, amazing. Some of these platforms allow you to go in for even less. I even just learned about a new platform the other day. I'm trying to remember what it's called. I think it's called like Allied Homes or something like that. It is basically like syndicated single family homes now. And you know, totally outsourced, you know, through these all these new regulations that allow these kind of syndicated offerings that act like share prices and that kind of stuff. The long and the short of that is that you have to just understand where people are making it. So in terms of the marketing, is this being looked at for you? Right. So the people are who are giving education, they're generally marketing to you to sell you something, which again, some people want the education. Like some people like, hey, they're listening to this podcast and they're like, this is great, but I'm missing something. I need even the deeper dive, right? And so they're looking for the course or they go search YouTube or whatever it may be. And so therefore they're okay being marketed to for education. But if you're now being marketed to invest in something, just understand like, hey, what is the fee structure? So I would say like at a very high level, it's fairly normal that most deals you would see in multifamily, storage, office, there's something called an acquisition fee, right? So more or less, the idea here is that the operator, the sponsor, is being paid for all the diligence, all the work, everything they've done to kind of get to the goal line of presenting this opportunity to you or their investors or whomever. That fee can be anywhere from 1% to 5%. Standards look like one5 to 25 Most people would say, hey, I feel comfortable with a 1%. That fee can get paid to other people, meaning like, let's say I capital raise for somebody. They may say, okay, we're going to give you some of that 2%. But that 2% has been fully baked into all of the numbers. If you're going direct, you have to assume that someone is getting paid to have underwritten this deal. And that's, again, a fair thing. But the most important thing about that number is make sure that it's built into the projections. And usually it's on all the closing costs. It's usually on the uses and source, sources and uses. So you know, you're going to pay like 1% for the mortgage fee. You're going to pay, there's a, a broker fee, all these different things. And in there usually is some sort of origination fee, an acquisition fee. They may call it a million different things. And then the operator, obviously, inside their projections should have asset management fees, where those, again, can range from 1% to 5%, depending on how good and efficient they are and how many buildings they have probably in the neighborhood that they can scale. But that's how they keep on the lights and how they pay their employees. But these are things just to be paying attention to as investors and saying, okay, where are these fees? Are they modeled in already to my returns? And if yes, then that's fine. 
but just kind of be on lookout to understand like, hey, they're running a business, which is great. Like I'm not knocking anyone for making money on their business. They should. But at the same time, you as the investor should be paying attention to some of these things. The same with a mutual fund, right? Like, hey, what's my expense ratio? What are these fees? Because someone is ultimately operating some of these things. Some of what you said that, that how is this working? Who's making what? Where is the money being made? Those are all questions you need to answer. And I think you said it very well that just because someone's making money on it doesn't mean it's bad. Obviously, the people that you're dealing with have to make money. If you're doing working with someone that through crowdfunding, that's just another layer. They're simplifying things for you. They're reducing minimums. So you're paying for that, essentially, That rather than going direct. That all makes sense. Now, you mentioned a few metrics. You mentioned the equity multiple, cash on cash return, IRR, and average rate of return. So some of those metrics are on all the deals that we're looking at, right? But not all of the metrics are on all of the deals we're looking at. Would you mind talking about which metrics of those you think are the most important or how you factor those into analyzing a deal? To answer the first question, what is the most important? I cannot give you a generic answer. And the reason for that is it depends on the investor and what their objectives are. And let me explain so that I'm not like trying to like hedge the answer. IRR in general, is the most probably marketed number. Meaning like people kind of like promote that number often as like the number. And there's a lot of value in it. And I'm not discounting the IRR whatsoever. But here's the thing about an IRR, okay? An IRR can be, let's call it juiced. Meaning the higher the IRR, the more attractive the deal looks, right? Because that implies the internal rate of return. That is what it stands for. And when I was in college, like I learned this in finance, I had no idea what the heck the professor was talking about. I'm like, I know the formula. I did well on the test, but I don't even understand what the purpose of this number was. And I don't even know what it was really telling me, like honestly. And then when I got into investment banking and, and investing in private companies, and then I started to understand like why it's a metric that people use and how to think about it. The concept is pretty simple. Time value of money. The money you get today is more valuable than the money you get tomorrow, right? So this is present value, future value. So if I can give you a dollar today versus giving you a dollar a year from now, the dollar today is worth more to you. Why? Because you can do something with it. You can reinvest it, you can invest it, whatever it may be. So when you look at an IRR, the assumption is that if I get the money back quicker, it's more valuable to me because then I could do something and reinvest it into something else. On paper, that makes complete sense. In practical reality, though, as an individual who's in syndications, the first question is, is do you have the ability to constantly redeploy that money? Do you have enough deal flow that is attractive and good enough that if you are getting the money back, that you can actually redeploy it? Now, let's go with the assumption of the yes. Okay, wonderful. So, now, if I model out this investment for you, right, we're looking at this apartment deal, and I model it to a five-year exit versus a seven-year exit, by definition, the IRR on a five-year exit will be higher, assuming the numbers all to be the same, it will be higher because you're going to get the money back two years earlier than on a seven-year modeling. So when you see a shiny big IRR, First question is, is how long do they expect to be in the deal? What is the expected duration, right? So if they're modeling out a five-year and this is your first deal, I will tell you, you may get out in five years, but you may get out in seven or 10 years. And so 
the IRR will totally, totally change. The next thing with the IRR is how is it being calculated from the standpoint of is there an expected refinancing in the deal? So sometimes the underwrite the the sponsors when they're going into a deal, they know that they are going to what we call, you know, add value to the property, raise rents, restabilize it, and then in year two or three, they intend to refinance the loan, take some of basically, let's say you have a $10 million acquisition, you take a $7 million loan up front. Two years in, we now increase the rent. So therefore the net operating income, the NOI is higher. And let's even assume that the cap rate is the same from the day you bought it to two years later. You now can go to the bank though and get the same 70 cents on the dollar, but your loan to value of 70 cents will be on a higher value because you've increased the net operating income, the NOI. The two drivers of value are NOI and cap rates. Assuming the cap rate stays the same, meaning the market conditions are the same, it's no better or no worse, but you've improved the cash flow, well, the bank will give you more money. So what happens? We say, okay, instead of having a $10 million value property, we now have a $12 million value property. So instead of taking a $7 million loan, we're going to refinance that $7 million loan and we're going to take out $9 million. And so $9 million, we have two excess, two excess million, right? We repaid the seven, we have $2 million. That goes back to the investors, right? So everyone will kind of get a chunk of change. So after two or three years, you will get, call it half of your money back in the form of an equity repayment. And so again, it's there's tax benefits to doing this, but it will also juice the IRR, right? It'll increase the IRR because you're going to get money back faster. That may be very attractive to you, but your cash flow now in year three and four and five and six or whatever it is after you do this may or may not drop. Why? Well, if you refinance the loan, if you get a, an IO, meaning an interest only for one year, you may get the same cash flow. But in years four, five, and six, you now have a higher debt service on this thing, right? We had a $7 million loan, but now we have a $9 million loan. So the cash flow from the property, even if we've increased the NOI, the net operating income and increased rents, we may decrease our annual cash flow. So as an investor, it depends on where you are in your life cycle, meaning what's more important to you, going back to your initial question, what's most important to you? Is it constant cash flow of 7, 8, 9, 10, 11% of cash on cash annually? Or is it getting the money back quicker and therefore an IRR is more important? Or do you say, listen, I don't care if this is going to be one, six, 10, five, seven years, however many years, I want to look at every dollar I put in, how many dollars out am I going to have at the end? And that's what the equity multiple is going to tell me. The equity multiple is going to be like, okay, you put a dollar in, you're going to get two out, right? So that's a 2x equity multiple. So it's going to be a 100% return. But that return is going to be over, call it five years, seven years, 10 years, whatever it may be, it really differs, right? Like if I say to you, you can have 100% return, the ROI is 100%, sounds attractive. But did that take me three years or did that take me 10 years? And that's really what the equity multiple is really going to be telling me. And all you're doing with the equity multiple is you divide that excess. Like, so if you have a 2x, so that's 100% return, you're just going to divide it by the number of years it took. And that is your average annual return. So these metrics really depend on what your objective is and how you think about your investment portfolio.
Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. The thing that you need to do before you invest, which I haven't always done, but I'm slowly learning this, is figure out why you're investing. Are you investing for cash flow? Are you investing for appreciation? Are you investing for speedy return of capital so you can go invest again? And once you figure that out, then you can match your strategy to the metric that you're most looking at. And I think you explained that very well because the IRR, as you said, it depends on how fast you want your money back. But also if, the, if their main focus is getting you your money back, but the market's deteriorating so you don't have something good to invest it in, then I would rather have kept my money in that deal. But that's not what people talk about, right? Most of the communities, communities like mine, we're mostly focused on how fast can we get our capital back so we can do it again. Well, there's going to come a point where you're not going to want to get that capital back because maybe there's not a good place to put it. So I think that was really well said. There's two things. One is newer investors always are like, hey, I've de-risked my investment. I've gotten my money off the table. I've gotten it back quickly. This is pretty attractive to me. And... I think we've entered a period though here where valuations are so high that if you do get the money back and you do have to deploy it, it starts to make you wonder of like, okay, is this a good time to be redeploying it? And I'm not saying it's not, but it's something you have to start to think about. And if you look three years ago, what a cash on cash return looked like, it's honestly totally different than what it looks like today. Like if you tell someone today that you have a good solid cash flowing property and the pref is going to be six or seven or eight percent, but that's probably all you're going to see from a cash on cash return perspective annually. That's a pretty attractive deal at this point. And if you tell that to someone though who's playing in the crypto space, they're like, what the heck is that? Like, that's horrible. Now, granted, they're not taking into effect, into account any of the tax benefits as a limited partner that you have, right? So you have the depreciation and the amortization expenses and you have the interest expense. So when you get your K-1 as a syndicated investor, you're not, you get something at the end of the year called a K-1 if you've never done this. And then K-1, we may have, let's give a hypothetical, we put $100,000 into a deal and it's a 7% annual cash flow for year one. So in year one, I have received $7,000 of cash. But when I get my K-1, I will probably see somewhere in the four dollars to $5,000 of losses. Don't freak out. You should be happy because you've now received $7,000 of cash. You do not have a tax bill, and yet you have a loss that you can use to offset any other gains that you may have across your investment portfolio. When we look at it that way, the 7% is totally different animal versus you know an actual 7%, so to speak, as well as, hey, I'm looking at this long-term, meaning I think I plan to exit this at a better rate, or I know that we've done so much value add to this property that when we bought it, it was a class C property, but we're going to turn this into a B or an A, and so we may have bought it at a 7% cap rate, but I think we can get out even at a 6 
not to say it can't be a four in this market, but ultimately, to the point you made, why are you getting into this investment? What are the most important things to you? And where is the juice of the return coming from? Meaning like, is it from the assumed improvement on the sale, right? So when I look at something, if I see the going in cap rate, so there's generally like what we call three cap rates that people talk about, okay? There's the going in cap rate, like what are we buying it for? There's the in place, meaning like after year one, like based on the trailing 12 kind of numbers, like what's that cap rate going to look like? And then there's the stabilized cap rate, meaning after we've made whatever improvements or increases, what does that cap rate look like? And then you have sometimes that stabilized one is the same as the exit one. And sometimes you may have a different one where they're assuming a different exit. If you're trying to compare things on an apple to apples basis, right? Like on a stabilized cap rate, what is the implied, what are we basically paying for today? And what do we assume we're going to exit for later? If you're buying it, let's just say hypothetically at a six and a half cap rate, and they assume that you're going to exit at a five and a half, that's a pretty significant move. If you're not super experienced and you hear that, you're like, ah, it's one percentage point. That is a huge move. One of the big things I generally do with any deal I'm looking at or reviewing for other people is I look for a working model or I'm going to have to rebuild the Excel model myself. The biggest thing I'm just going to tinker with just on the onset is what is the assumed cap rate on the exit? And what happens if I move that 50 basis points higher, even 25 basis points? Because you'll see that sometimes 10 basis points, so point 0.1 of a move. So if they assume that you're going to exit at a 6.1 cap rate, if you move that to 6.2, that may change the entire dynamic of the investment thesis. And so going back to like, hey, why am I getting into it? Understanding the driver here. Like, is this a backloaded deal where they're assuming they're going to get a way better cap rate on the exit? If that's the case, ask yourself, do you believe in that? And does that make sense? And, and if it makes sense and you believe that, that's great. And again, I'm not saying that's not possible. It totally is. A lot of the times the cap rates have, or if you bought anything three years ago, the cap rates have dropped tremendously. So we're not talking about the impossible. But understand where the most of the value is coming from. Is it coming from increased rent? Is it coming from a refinancing? Is it coming from a really good exit? And so that you understand like almost like the risk to the underwriting model, because listen, at the end of the day, it's very rare that you see a deal that goes exactly according to the underwriting model, right? Like it's better, it's worse, it's longer, it's shorter, but it's very rare that it's exactly what they modeled out. And so you just have to, and, and again, whatever works for you, it's okay to have like five different investments in five different properties that have totally five different theses, right? So like, hey, this one I'm looking for a straight up cash flow because that guy's giving me an 11% cash on cash return. I know that I'm really not gonna see much of a lift on the exit, but that's okay, right? Like I'm going in at a five cap rate, I'm gonna come out at a five cap rate, maybe I'll even come out at a worse cap rate, but it won't matter because this is all about the cash flow. This one's gonna be a two-year refinance. I'm gonna get a chunk of my money, maybe two-thirds of my money back in two years. Okay, I'm looking at it from that perspective. The next one is a quasi, it's not even cash flowing well now. So year one or two, I may not even see a cash coupon of, of anything significant, maybe 1%. But I know that this one is going to be, we're going to see a totally different cap rate on the exit and I'm going to see the money on the exit. We're going to get like a 3x multiple because we're going to improve the value tremendously. All these things are just things to be considering and have a good understanding of what kind of fits you. And again, you can have a diversified strategy across it. 
but making sure you understand all these drivers. Yeah, and each sponsor is going to be different, right? You want to understand the underwriting. And then, as you said, you want to understand the risk to the underwriting model, right? What could go wrong or go right. And then you also have to recognize that each sponsor is going to be different. You have to evaluate that. And that's one of the things sponsors, um, I'd like to pivot and talk about that real quick, which is there's all kinds of sponsors out there. How do you find quality sponsors? And even more important than that, how do you vet them to know that they're quality sponsors? The easiest way to kind of find them is trial and error, right? <laughs> like invest with them and find out what they're really like. Okay. So let's assume you can't invest in five, six, seven, eight sponsors a year. And you know, you're like, well, I need to kind of have a good understanding. So number one is you can always ask any sponsor for their track record. They will all provide you something. If all of their deals though, have been inside the last three or four years and they have no dispositions, meaning they have no exits, it is a lot more difficult for you to have a very good vantage point of how they are going to perform heading into today's market. Not because of anything about the market, it's just they have no real performance record for you to know that here's what we underwrote and here's what we sold for. If you know someone at that sponsor or you know someone who knows someone at that sponsor, great. Now you have a leg up, right? And so that's one of the things that like, I generally perform for people like when they work with me is I either have heard of them, I've known of them, I know someone who knows them, or I'll have to do the diligence on my own. Because one of the things is, hey, they've been in business for three to four years, they have no dispositions. So question number one, because of the craziness that we've lived through the last couple of years is, hey, when March and June of 2020 were happening, did they pause distributions? And if they did pause distributions, did they turn them back on? Did they make you whole inside of 2020? Because I've heard a lot of different stories about a lot of different sponsors who did a lot of different things. Some were like, we're going to hoard cash for a quarter or two because we don't really know what's going to happen, right? So if you're in a multifamily and the government basically says, hey, nobody has to pay rent and you can't kick them out. And at the same time, the banks are like, yeah, you can freeze your payment on the loan only for a month. Basically, you're paying the bank regardless and or the sponsor's paying the bank regardless, but your tenants don't have to pay you, right? So how did they fare during this? And did they have to pause? Did they not? But I think you can get a pretty good sense of people's, even if they haven't had a disposition, they can show you like, hey, are we ahead of plan or behind plan? The better sponsors typically will show you to original underwriting plan to to date. And there's a self-storage sponsor I work with where they're like, hey, listen, we have these, uh, we, we're in these 10 different deals and these six are crushing it, like way ahead of plan. Here's our numbers. These two are in line and these two are terribly behind plan. And you now like, okay, so A, they're honest, right? So 20% of their deals, right, are behind plan. How do I feel about that? Well, let's look at the market. Let's look at what went wrong. Like you can ask them. If you're an investor, you have the right to ask, well, why did it go not according to plan? Were your costs off base? Or did you kind of assume that you could raise rent? Like what mistakes did you make or what changed in the marketing, the market from what you were doing? And I think most operators, most sponsors have no issue. Like if they're not trying to hide something, they have no issue kind of telling you what's actually happening because they understand like for the most part, you are the lifeblood to their ability to kind of go out and get that next deal, right? Like you may not be writing a $10 million check yourself, but if they start to treat investors a certain way, 
eventually it will catch up with them. Obviously, if they have poor performance, that will catch up with them even faster. But if people don't like working with them, people won't invest. As much as they may find the deals, if they're not putting in 100% of the equity on their own every time, which no sponsor really is, they ultimately need an investor base who kind of believes in them. But one of the key things is that investors, especially new people who may be a little bit nervous talking to a sponsor, you have the right to ask questions. And you said that, and that's super powerful because if they're honest enough to give you some of their bad news, then they're certainly going to answer any questions you have about something that didn't go right. But even the anything that is going right or any questions you have or fees, you don't understand all of it. Everything is, there are so many sponsors out there that you don't have to get hooked into one and think, oh, I talked to this person, I have to invest with them. Ask the questions. If you have a question, you got to ask it. So I think that's really powerful. I'd like to pivot here and talk a little bit about your community and what membership provides. I understand that you can help people analyze deals, analyze sponsors. Can you talk a little bit about your operation, your community, and what you do? I was working a lot with entrepreneurs and people who really had a hard time getting their arms around their numbers, their personal financial plan, and things of that nature. So about eight, nine months ago, I co-created a course, and it was not real estate and passive investing focus. It was first like step one, get your financial plan together and really understand like, ultimately, we all want to have money, but like how much money and how big of a, a pot of money do we want or how much cash flow do we want? And I think the problem a lot of people have, honestly, is step one is they don't necessarily know what their cost of living truly is. And it's not about judgment or saying, hey, change your lifestyle or don't spend this. Don't like, I don't care. Like, live how you want to live, but actually start to get your arms around that. So I co created a course called Future Fund, and that's located at Future Fund Me. And what I had done before that, and now I've grown it, is the people who are looking to invest and have the ability to invest let's call it $25,000, $100,000, those people either lack the access or lack the ability to vet it or even know the key drivers. Some of the things that we've talked about, like in call it high speed here, right? Understanding like where the risks lie. I created a program where people can work with me. And when I created that course though, originally, what I found was there was a lot of people who were, they're not ready to necessarily even put the 50,000 out because they're just not sitting on that capital. And that's okay. And so they're kind of like, there's this thing called beyond future fund. Really, it's like, it's the next stage, right? The future fund is like the foundational work of, hey, how do my numbers work and how much, and even like the asset classes. Some people don't even understand like what we're talking about, real estate as, as a general thing. And I touch basically stocks and crypto and, and all kinds of other asset classes. Beyond Future Fund is like, hey, it's one-on-one -on -one work with me for a pretty short period of time, call it six to eight weeks. And then the one-on-one -on -one for one year is really where that's when you're going to see a deal flow. Probably once a month, you'll see an opportunity that I will have vetted. And you also have the ability, like if you're seeing stuff, like, hey, you, you call me and you're like, hey, Arie, I saw this deal and I got this email from the sponsor. I've never invested with them. I, I'm not really sure. Can you break this down? Can you watch the video? Can you tell me all these things? And I basically will be your personal like analyst is, is the way I think about it, right? So my job in my mind is I'm an offensive coordinator and I'm calling the plays for you. 
And you're ultimately going to be the one executing, right? I'll tell you, well, here's why I like it. Here's why I don't like it. Here are the risks. Here are the benefits of it. Are you looking for cash flow? Like all the things we talked about, like what is your real objective? Do you want to be getting a higher exit and therefore you're not really looking for cash flow now? Or you're like, no, I kind of want to live off of this. This is like, I'm trying to get fat fire or I'm trying to get regular fire or whatever, you know, your personal game plan is, right? Like, and that's the thing about personal finance. I tell everybody the word personal is there for a reason. If I invest in a startup and I know that it's going to be a boom or bust, that works for me because that's 1% of my portfolio. But that may not work for someone else because that 1% would be 10% or my 1% is someone else's 0.0001%. It's all relative and it's all very personal. From the foundational side, futurefundme.com is where that is. And then the solution advisory is where people can apply and I can really tell based on like literally five questions where they're really at to kind of guide them to that next step. Are they ready for, hey, I'm looking for syndications, I'm sitting on capital. One of the things that we didn't get to today, but you and I had talked about in a previous discussion was things like, I really don't want to take this risk, but I am looking to just you know, earn a nice return. And in today's market, you have things that a lot of people don't necessarily know about or they're scared of. In the quote unquote crypto space, we have these things called stable coins, right? And stable coins are pegged to the dollar. I mean, they have them pegged to other currencies as well. But basically, if we really quickly think about how the banks work, you put a dollar in deposits. Now the banks, according to the Federal Reserve System, they're basically allowed to lend $4 out against your $1. The way stable coins work is they more or less, it's it's not a thousand percent, but they more or less are back dollar for dollar. So every dollar in stablecoin has a fiat US dollar behind it. Even if it's only 75 cents on the dollar, what they then do is they lend out that money, but they don't lend it. Like if you go into Bank of America or Wells Fargo today, when they lend, half the time it's on a home and half a quarter of the time it's on a car. But if I lend it on a car, what happens? I have this depreciating asset that I now have to kind of go get a tow truck and foreclose on it and try and resell it to recoup my loan. The way the stablecoin market works is people put up other collateral, other coins that think of it almost like as a stock margin call. They'll lend you 50 cents on your value dollar. So you put your Bitcoin in at $48,000, they'll lend you $24,000 of the stablecoin and they're going to charge them 12%. This platform is basically going to take the 12% and give you nine of it. And they'll make the 3% because they didn't have to really do a whole lot. But if Bitcoin drops to a certain level, they're just going to sell out the Bitcoin, take the cash, and give you back your money, and they'll have their money. Whereas like a bank, like that's why they have loan losses or loan loss reserves, right? Because they have to go and they have to assume that whatever the value was, they're not going to get fully on it. Whereas in this crypto space, they generally don't lend on a loan to value of 70 or 80%. It's usually in the 50, maybe 60% or less. And they have control of the asset that they can actually just liquidate in real time. Helping people have perspective on things and understanding like where they feel comfortable and where they can actually get nice returns. Your philosophy is you're, you're not about having people change their lifestyle or cut their expenses You're about trying to find ways to help them invest and manage their finances. But not only that, to understand where they are and where they want to get to. And I think that's a super powerful 
service that people need. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? They can head over to solutionadvisory.com. You can reach out. Instagram is probably the platform I'm most active on, and that's REA the Businessman. Future Fund Me was that was that other site. So those websites, and you know, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, all these different platforms. But I'm probably the most active on Instagram. But all the other ones are just as good. I, I get all my messages. Excellent. Well, that's great. I'll put that all in the show notes. And it's been a while since I recorded a podcast that I forgot to ask my final question before the contact information. So I want to back up and ask you, what is a great podcast that you listen to? Can You can throw more than one in there if you want. I know you have your own podcast and that'll be in the show notes. So you can't use that one, but anything else is game. I'm going to go wide in the sense that it is not going to be a direct investing podcast, okay? It is going to be a general business one that will seed ideas for investing and businesses. And it's called My First Million. And the two hosts are Sam Parr and Sean Puri. I can say I don't know either of them personally, but... They're on episode, I don't know, 300 at this point in time or something like that. And the episodes are, think of it as just two people hanging out, talking business and talking about other people's businesses and saying, hey, did you see this thing? Oh, that looked interesting. Yeah, no, no, tell me about it. I don't know anything about it. Or yeah, I did. And then each has a different point of view on it. One is a more conservative investor. One is a more aggressive investor. And so you get totally different vantage points. So it's not really just about the money. It's about thinking and hearing different viewpoints. So that would be my recommendation. Well, that's great. And I also will say, as I said, Inside the Lion's Den podcast is your podcast. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. So we had that a little bit out of order, but you know, it's 2022 and we're just starting out. We're a little bit, I don't want to say stale, but I'm, I'm out of practice. But this is a great episode. I appreciate your time. We'll do this again for sure so you can help me understand Stablecoin a little bit better. You got it. No problem. All right. Thank you very much. My pleasure. We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community. At Ashcroft, they focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential through their value add funds. They are proud to announce their second fund, the Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind, to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with, acquiring quality multifamily assets and offering value add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash left field. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash left field. I really enjoyed the uh, conversation with REA. You know, there's a couple of things that really stuck out to me. And the first one was, you know, he talked about some of these sponsors are making money marketing to you and they might not necessarily be making money for you, but they're making money off of you. And it's critical to figure out who's doing that and probably to avoid those people and stick with people that are making money for you. And it's okay for them to make money as well. Obviously, that's the whole point of this is they want to make money. You want to make money, but you have to make sure everyone's aligned and that 
both parties are making money and not just they're making money marketing to you. That's when you're the product and that's when you probably don't want to be involved. He also talked about how passive investing sometimes is active. And we've talked about that here before, you know, with my single family turnkey properties, those were intended to be passive, but they were anything but. And so having an asset manager manage the property, manage the property manager, makes it more likely that this asset that you're investing in will turn out to be passive and not active. If that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for active, just understand it and go for it. And then the questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions of sponsors or of anybody that you're investing with. You want to make sure that you ask where the money's being made, who's doing what. We've talked about this before in the podcast as well. But just to make sure that you aren't afraid to ask the questions or intimidated or you think that the sponsor isn't going to want you to invest if you ask questions. That's easy. If they don't like the questions you're asking, move on. There's plenty of sponsors. Don't invest with them. And really, one of the neatest things I think he talked about was making sure that the metrics you're evaluating are aligned with your intended investment strategy. And we talked about equity multiple, cash on cash return, IRR, and average return. And then he talked about how each one of those might cater to a different type of investor, whether you're investing for cash flow or quick return of capital or appreciation. And so that was pretty powerful to me to think about, okay, I need to think about what my strategy is and then find the investment. I already do that, but then to, to cater the metrics to make sure that they match with my investment strategy. So that's something I'll take with me from this for sure. And then I also like, he's an advisor trying to help people invest. We do that through our community as well. We each do it in different ways, but I like that he's not trying to change the lifestyle of his clients. He has an abundance mindset where he's trying to grow their wealth. He wants them to recognize their lifestyle and their costs, and their expenses, things like that. But he's not going in there and just saying, hey, we got to cut all these expenses so that you can have money. He's saying, here's what they are. Recognize, understand them. Now let's go invest so that you can maintain or increase that lifestyle. So I thought that was a great conversation and look forward to learning from him some more and having more conversations. But for today, that's it. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.